Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. I have nothing to say other than Jane fucking Fonda is on my fucking podcast. How the hell has this happened? I have been obsessed with her for basically my entire life. I was so little when I first became aware of her work as a comedic actress, as a serious actor, as a, as a producer, as this incredible, iconic entertainer and one of the most beautiful women I'd ever seen. I was so in love with her as a kid and as an adult, really. But this was before I even came to learn about what an extraordinary life this woman has lived the ways in which she has risked her life, risked her sanity, her general well-being, the well-being of her family, all in the name of leveraging her privilege to help those who have less, all in the name of equal rights for all. She is just fearless and so interesting and sharp and funny and strong and inspiring. And listen, guys, I'm just going to level with you. You've heard me give some fairly competent interviews over the course of the last year, and very rarely do I become a sort of wilting, sweating squirrel. But uh, unfortunately for us all, this is one of those times. And I was so mad at myself afterwards. I was like, what the fuck was that, Jamil? Why were you such a weird, timid, gushing freak of nature? But I, um, I was... You're going to hear like the little girl in me who's been obsessed with this woman forever. I, uh, I felt so, so small and shy and vulnerable. And I was on Zoom with Jane and she's just looking right into my soul through the Zoom. And I just couldn't, I couldn't cope. I was so overwhelmed with what a big deal it was that she was on my podcast. And I don't often get starstruck. And I've met her before and interviewed her before, but it just never wears off because she's just, it's so far beyond entertainment or, or fame or, or talent even. It's, it's just what an extraordinary human being. It's so rare that you ever get to meet someone so extraordinary, so full of love, so full of empathy, so full of humility and desire to learn, so self-analytical, so, so, terrifyingly and intimidatingly bright and and brave and and willing to just go to the hardest conversations in order to make sure that they're had willing to sacrifice all of her privacy and and be so entirely vulnerable and frank about her life about her shortcomings about her mistakes about her existence in order to make other people feel seen i didn't you know i i remember for years thinking that she was associated with the, you know, the kind of the exercise 
world. I mean, she was a, a leader in the exercise world. Uh, had probably, I think, still the biggest selling uh, VHS of all time with her exercise workout video. But I used to think of that as like a kind of frivolous actress getting into workout. I had no idea that she was funding grassroots activism uh, with the money, all of the money that she was making from her books and and exercise videos and all of her appearances around the world about it. I had no idea that that was her motivation. It was nothing to do with vanity. It was nothing to do with thinness. It was nothing to do with diet culture. This woman was trying to save lives with something that was accessible to her. Anyway, I am, um, I'm so sorry that I became a little girl during this interview. I had the best time ever. I, I wish I had been sharper and cooler and better, but I'm never going to forget that she took the time out of her busy, busy life trying to literally save the world to come on and talk to me about how she arrived at activism, about her journey through mental health, about the things that she has seen and done, about love, about her relationship with herself, and about climate change and climate justice, and all of the important information that she was willing to share with me about that, amongst many other things. We went everywhere. We went everywhere. We did everything. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to stop talking because I'm so irrelevant. Uh, anyway, never mind when Jane Fonda is about to speak. So uh, here she is. She's a literal fucking icon. And I'm, I'm freaking out, guys. <laughs> I'm never like this. Oh, God, why am I so cringe? Okay, enjoy. DM me. I really, really, really want to know how you feel about this. Oh, and please go and watch her documentary, Jane Fonda, in five acts. Uh, because it's the wildest and most extraordinary life story that you could imagine. Lots of love. You look like Vampira. Who's Vampira? I don't know. Some very exotic woman with long dark hair. <laughs> That's an amazing way Amy to start. Winehouse eyes. <laughs> oh sure. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh Jane Fonda, welcome to Iway. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. It's lovely to see you again. again? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh we have only met a couple of times and every time you have just struck me as such a such a dream of empowerment, kindness, openness, guidance, humility, confidence, and just coolness. And uh, I shows you what you know. <laughs> I'm <laughs> smart. <laughs> Maybe not, but I you uh, get that wrong. <laughs> I I love you. Uh, I love you so much. And I know that's weird because I don't know you, but I can't tell you what a role model you are for me, what a blueprint I feel like you've created for people like me, uh, for all women everywhere, people everywhere, and just how much I admire you and also 
how much, how grateful I am for how much of your life story that you have shared over the course of your life, because it has made people like me feel less alone. Oh, so, thank you, Jamila. That, you know, it blows my mind that, that you say that. And it, I'm honored that you say that. And I love The Good Place. And I started watching it because I love Ted Danson. And I had never seen like you on the screen. Uh, and <laughs> so beautiful. And you're, you know, such a great figure. And, and so you just aren't afraid of sending yourself up. And I just loved you and that character. And then when I finally met you, I felt like I had known you and you were so friendly. And I'm very happy that we're becoming friends. Likewise. Um, I have to say that it feels as though I would need an entire podcast season with you to cover how extraordinary your life has been. So it's been quite stressful trying to figure out what the fuck I'm going to ask Jane Fonda about because there are a billion questions I have. Well, when um, you're 84, it'll be the same for somebody <laughs> interviewing you. When there's been a lot I'm, of water over, under the bridge, there's a I'm, lot to say. I'm afraid it's not, it's not, it doesn't matter if you're 84 or not. I've met other 84-year-olds who do not have so many life experiences under their belt. But as this is a, a mental health podcast and mental health is something that you have spoken about uh, so much uh, over the course of your life, I was wondering if you could tell us for those who maybe do not know yet what has your experience been like with your mental health across your life oh, okay <laughs> well to be perfectly honest um i started off handicapped okay my mother was uh, my mother had been sexually abused at a young age she was bipolar and she killed herself when i was 12 and my father suffered from undiagnosed depression if there had been Prozac then, our whole lives would have been different. And, um, you know, so I started off my life as a pretty depressed, repressed person. Um, but here is, and, and I sort of was that way until I became an activist in my early 30s. And then everything sort of changed for me. I, I felt that I had a reason to be on Earth a purpose in life. I started meeting different kinds of people. I started getting more of a sense of the sorts of people that I wanted to be like. I wanted to have my life have meaning. I wanted to be brave. I wanted to leave this world better than when I came in it, all those kind of things. And, you know, I've been thinking and, and realizing lately that one of the important things that I've done and that I encourage people to do is I have been brave enough to continually get out of my comfort zone. Mm. Um, I think it's very important to do that and it can mean many different things. It certainly means, has meant for me over and over again, taking a hard look at the relationship that I'm in and trying to figure out do I want to stay here? Is being in this relationship going to help me become a person that I want to be? Is it going to help me grow and expand? And if the answer is no, I leave. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get stuck. And I think it's really important to illustrate that while I think you maybe mean emotional, like sort of romantic relationships, I also would extend that hopefully with your grace to 
to any kind of relationship, be that work relationship, be that one with a parent or a sibling or someone in your life who you are close to, who you need to distance yourself from. That autonomy is so important to keep checking in with yourself. What do I need? And women are so discouraged from ever asking themselves that question because we are sort of born with this understanding or this programming, at least, that this nurture rather than nature. We have perhaps. to make it better. I've got to make it yeah. better. I have to stay here and help them. Yeah. Yeah, we have to placate everyone. We must always put ourselves second, if that. And and selfishness is something that is far more admired or at least accepted in men, whereas in us it is this huge taboo. Yeah. How did you manage to find your your will to walk towards self-preservation? I just... I have a, I, I don't, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm really afraid of getting to the end of life with, with regrets. Mm-hmm. And regrets are always about what you didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, and so if I'm in a relationship that I'm going to regret staying in, that gives me the courage to leave. I mean, I'm with guys, I mean, relationships. Um, with with men, I have issues with men. I'm I'm single now, and I realize that I'm really just not gifted at relationships. You wouldn't know it because I do what women do. You know, I really put myself wholeheartedly into it. I, you know, I give myself very over a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, then a point comes when I realize that I have to separate myself and go my my own way if I'm going to grow. And and I mean, the point of life, it seems to me, is to grow. One of the smartest things that I did was with this fear of regrets, when I turned, when I was approaching my 60th birthday and realizing it would, it was my, it would be the beginning of my last act, my third act. And, you know, the third acts are important. I realized that in order to know where you want to go, you have to know where you've been. Now, this may not resonate with you and your audience because you're probably quite young, all of you. But I don't know if if to people who are older, I think that they will understand what I did was I spent a number of years researching myself. I mean, I re- that means not just I did this, then I did this and I did this. But how did I feel? Mm. And in order to get that, you sort of have to take yourself like an actor, take yourself back there to the experience even when you were very young and try to relive the, the turning points in your life and why they happened and what you were really feeling and who are your parents? Who were your parents? Why did they behave the way they did? And that, in order to answer that, you have to know who your grandparents were and how they treated your parents and what they taught to your parents. And anyway, after a number of years, actually, I, what I did was I wrote my memoir. And and um, and because I was dealing with very universal issues, it, it it was very useful for people to read my memoir because it's all the things in it are pretty are pretty universal. But what that ends up doing, if you really do it deeply, and you and you and you you know you you don't just skim the surface, what it shows you is that it had nothing to do with you, that your parents had their issues for reasons that you have to try to understand so you can forgive them. But it wasn't your fault. And then you begin to discover who, who you are. And it was this, 
was the smartest thing that I, it has enabled me to live these last decades of my life as a much more grounded and whole person than I would have otherwise. You know, it's like, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. I do. I do. And I also think because my generation were far more exposed to the conversation of mental health thanks to your generation and thanks to the rise of the internet and social media and the hyper-normalization of the mental health discussion, I do actually think what you're saying is more relevant to my audience than you would presume. And I think that this last year has kind of fast-forwarded everyone on earth into a a state of stillness uh, amongst the chaos that has forced us to really look at our lives, look at the way that we're living, look at the world at large. What does nor- What is normal? Do we want to return to a normal? What do we make the new normal of our individual and societal experiences look like? And that's not just our individual changes, but the changes that we make as allies, as people who support other causes outside of our own lived experience. So I, I really appreciate that. And I think that that's a really really a sage piece of advice that anyone could use at any age that look back before you step forward. You've said before, when little, you adopt survival mechanisms, but then they last too long and they last beyond their usable time. They become impediments to growth. And you reflect that it took many decades to learn to not be afraid of saying how you feel or to allow your vulnerability. And I find that very interesting as something that I resonate with. I remember the last time I saw you, you commented on very fairly and accurately the fact that I can be, I can come across as quite closed off, quite guarded. And part of that is just because um, I think I'm in awe of you, but also part of that is just a self-defense mechanism because I really struggle to be vulnerable because I had a very similar childhood in many ways to you. I grew up around a lot of mental health issues And it took me until now to recognize that those mental health issues of my parents or my family members weren't my fault, that they were Mm -hmm. victims of their parents and their family members. And it's just a kind of lineage of neglect and abuse that led to, you know, the residue or the debris falling on my brother and I. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm still working on opening up and I was wondering if you could. It's a lifelong process. (laughs) It'll go on. The whole, your whole life, you have to keep working on it. We have to understand that mental health um, can cast a shadow over future generations. Yeah. You know, for example, there are certain things that happen to a woman who's been sexually abused. Right. The, the bond of trust is broken. Um, it can be promiscuity. It can be hate, hating body. It can be cutting. It can be, if you're wealthy, it, if you cut, that's one thing. If you have money, it's plastic surgery. You know, it's just, just hating your body and the way you look. There's all kinds of manifestations from sexual abuse. And it can lightly dust the daughter, but it can fall hard on the granddaughter, you know? Mm. And she won't know why or the mother won't know why her daughter is behaving in a certain you know in certain ways and so forth it's really important to find out these things to understand why these things happen why our parents did certain things and yes we find out that it's not our fault but then we we start to know how to heal because if we don't 
consciously and intentionally address the issues, first of all, admit they happen, understand, oftentimes it can happen by reading. I've learned so much just by reading about, you know, mental health issues, you know, Mm. Alice Miller, for example, all of her books, she's a very famous psychiatrist and she's written great, great books about mental health. That's helped me enormously. And and many other, I read vociferously about sexual abuse. And, and is that because of what your mother went through and how that then? Even before I knew what my mother went through, I started an organization in Georgia um, to try to help young boys and girls from getting pregnant while they're still so young. Um, and, and what I found out was that girls who are yet 15 or younger, you can bet your life if they're pregnant or parenting, it's they were sexually abused. Um, and I became absolutely fascinated with that. So I started studying it even before I knew about my mother. I was attracted to that issue. You can heal from these things, but not unless you understand them and are very intentional about healing. And the process of healing continues for for all your life, but that's good. What was it about your childhood that you think made you closed off? Was it the fact that you had a father who wasn't particularly forthcoming with his feelings, as you said before, that no one knew that he had depression? He didn't maybe even know he had depression. You also had a mother who lived really struggled, you know, was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. She was really struggling with her mental health. Was there a feeling of, because I know that this is what I had, of I have to cope through this. I have to be the one that copes. I'm strong. I see I see stoicism as a sign of strength. And I I don't want to resemble any of these people in my life. Therefore, I'm not going to show uh, any weakness by demonstrating any of their behaviors in myself. Yeah. I'm I mean, stable. I knew, I'm Jane. I knew, I knew that there was really no place that I could, occasionally I would have a girlfriend that had a mother who had empathy, but for the most part, where was I going to turn? Mm. <laughs> so I, and my brother was very different than me. My brother w- would fall apart much more. He was much, much more fragile and, um, you know, would, in in need of, I mean, he, needy. He was much more needy and fragile, and I didn't want to be like that. So I was the, you know, I was the strong one. I remember when I was um, twelve, when my mother killed herself. The same year, my brother accidentally shot himself. In fact, he was he, he was pronounced dead. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How did your brother almost shoot him? He was or did playing he with an antique gun that went off in his stomach. Oh and God. it was just, it was just like the bullet specialist uh, happened to be in the hospital and he, and he was saved. But, you know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't cry. I didn't, even when I found out my mother died, I didn't cry or anything. And people would say, isn't she amazing? <gasps> She's so strong. Mm. That became my, the rap on me. I'm so strong. And th- that's what I meant when you quoted me from something I must have written you know, that that was my armor then. That got me through. I'm strong. But then later on in life, what happens is you become a person who won't express needs, won't express vulnerability, won't turn to anybody for help. Mm. I mean, I, it's very, very hard for me to ask for help. I sometimes get accused of coming across as cold. And I think it's because I'm maybe so afraid of how many feelings are in here. That if I 
if I even crack the window, (laughs) a tsunami's coming out of me. I think that I've held in so much and bottled up so much. And I, you know, I similarly to you have family members who took our our situation growing up much worse than I did. And for me, I don't know if you did this, but I switched a part of my brain off at the age of about six or seven, where I was just like, right, this isn't happening to me anymore. This is a film. This is a, this is a, something I'm witnessing. This is something I'm not a part of. I'm just, I'm here, but my body and my mind are safe somewhere else. I just sort of detached from myself. And I think that as much as that has definitely harmed my development, I have an arrested development um, emotionally. I've also, I also credit that with how I survived everything that happened, whereas it broke other people around, around me. Yeah, so you survived. It's a weird you, gift and curse are you in at the therapy? same time. Yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, and so, I'm yeah, much you, better you than I was. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I, no I'm, def- I'm better than I used to be, yeah. What you're describing is a typical a survival mechanism, mm. but it is, by the way, I, I know the people who are listening, I just want you to know I'm looking at a my laptop screen at Jamila. I just want to say... This is the most beautiful face I have ever seen. <laughs> I just want you to know, you listeners, because you can't see. Anyway, just to continue, what you described is a, is a universal mechanism. You know, girls who are being incested or abused as young girls, yeah. they leave their bodies and they are up in the ceiling looking down at themselves, separated mm-hmm. from themselves. Now, the challenge is you have to bring bring that little girl up on the ceiling down into your body and... You know, and uh, and heal, and you can. What was what was it that helped you to become to even be able to create that stoicism in yourself? Did you switch off, and then you switched um, back yeah. on later? Yeah, yeah. I, I can't even pretend that I've totally switched back on. <laughs> right. You know, I think it's why I have. Um, it's hard for me, you know, to be in. I mean, I've, I've been married three times, 10, 10 years, 10 years, 17 years. It's not too bad. But why they didn't last, I think, is partly because I, I can't entirely switch back on. I just don't have the, the, the emotional reactions that other people do. I can as an actor. Yeah. Maybe and one I, of the mechanisms. <laughs> Yeah, you once spoke about that about your father saying that he was ab- only able to access his emotions via a script. Yeah. Um you also said before that you felt as though none of those marriages which we're not going to go into now but none of them were democratic. You always had to silence or hide a part of yourself in order to or become what they wanted you to be. And I also feel like that's something easier to do when you are a closed off person. You kind of shape shift Mm-hmm. Because you don't have such a firm sense of identity yet that you're more watery and able to find other people's levels. And the more stable I become and the more mentally well I become, the harder I'm finding it with yeah, age to, to budge an inch yeah. <laughs> for other people, for for relationships or work or any yeah. dynamic I have. Yeah. I'm finding it like I'm just grounding to a halt. And I feel really good about that, even though sometimes it leads to lonelier moments. Mm-hmm. There is a tremendous loneliness that we don't speak about enough of when you're living an inauthentic life. Oh my god. Cuz then you feel like you're not even close to yourself and that to me is the loneliest feeling in the world. Being in inauthentic relationships 
this core self, mm-hmm. this place that is supposed to be filled with spirit, the spirit that unites us with everything, wholeness is empty. And so people fill it with all kinds of drugs, alcohol, sex, workaholism, food. Mm. You fill it with food and then you get rid of it. That's a lot of bulimia comes from that. I speak from experience. I was going to say, you have uh, you had a quite a long journey with bulimia. Yes. How old were you when that started? I was about, I would say, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. would binge and binge and binge and then purge. Mm-hmm. I would do all of the binging and then I would never manage to purge. And now I'm very <laughs> grateful for it. But at the time, <laughs> it just made me significantly bigger than I was planning on being because I would only regularly binge and then just sort of go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but I'm very grateful. My organs are very grateful that I was not successful at that. But yeah. you would say that that was your way of trying to fill the void that yes. space between you and the version of yourself that you're projecting yes. and pretending to be. Yes. yes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What has your journey with your body been like over the course of your life? How have you managed to come out of that? Um, I reached a point in my late 40s, early 40s, 
when I realized that um, that if I continued with this eating disorder, that I would not be able to function. And I had a very full life. I was a working actor. I had two children. I had a husband. I had a, a I was a political activist, and that I you know that I could very well die. And um, nobody knew that I did this. It was you know I I could hide it pretty well. And that I had to stop. And so instead of going to any kind of treatment or anything like that, I simply, I went cold turkey. And I, 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 I the more distance you can put between yourself and the last time you binge, the better. So I just forced myself to, to stop. And then I started the, the Jane Fonda workout and um, that really helped me. I found I found that with that kind of working out, I could I could control my body better without having to to purge and, and eat too much. And then gradually, little by little, I just no longer felt the need to 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 do it. And uh, I mean, I can't look. I I can't ever pretend that I am totally rid of body anxiety. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I grew up. You know, with my father at at a time when, well, I guess it's true now too. Women were judged by their bodies. You know, I I was I I I I mean, my body my body problems were really had big impacts on on my life for a long time. I think that's amazing that you've recovered from bulimia and I also think it's really important to remind people listening that it's okay if you don't fully overcome the body dysmorphia it's okay and it's very statistically it's very common I think it's something like 60% of the people who suffer with eating disorders or at least two-thirds even will always carry a little part of that anxiety from their time in hating that image and that you should never feel like you've failed it's just an ongoing incremental journey to keep trying to accept yourself. And I think that's a large part of my work publicly is to just try and remind people of the root causes of those eating disorders. And, And, you know, things that cause anxiety, like inauthentic relationships, uh, mm -hmm. a parent that, that confronts you with body issues and things like that, um, whatever they are. I have also found that Anti-anxiety medication done in, in, with a doctor can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Prozac kind of things, that a serotonin uptake inhibitor can, can really help people. I also wonder if partially your activism has been a big part in saving your life because it's something that I know that you consider to be one of the more important and enriching things that's ever, I don't know, not happened to you, but you've ever been involved in. Yeah, I um human beings need to have meaning in their lives. All of us do. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to look at our lives and feel that there is meaning. The meaning can be I am raising wonderful children. The meaning can be I am helping my neighborhood stay safe. What you know, it can be different things for different people, but I, you know, I'm I am making something of my life. And for the first 30 years of my life that was not the case, and as a result, I I led a pretty hedonistic life. I drank too much, I did drugs and all kinds of other things. When I decided for all kinds of reasons that we don't have time to go into now, I <laughs> decided to leave that life 
And this is my way when I make a detour and change, I do it like 500% and met totally different kinds of people and discovered a whole new world. I was so happy. There was no question about going back to anything else or I don't know. I mean, I just, I felt, I felt at home in my skin for the first time. And as I've gotten older and continued my activism, um, it's just grown, grown deeper and deeper. I wasn't depressed anymore either. I also feel as though my generation in particular and the generation after mine are encouraged to think of ourselves as an island, as a singular entity to like focus on and, and only try to nourish our, and this is maybe changed in the last year, but until then, because of the monster that is capitalism, they want us to be self-obsessive, self-critical and self-analytical and constantly try to acquire more things that will make us impressive to others. They don't really encourage community. Social media can encourage community, but it can also drive us further and further apart. And I think that for me, what advocacy has brought to my life is that I feel better feeling smaller, feeling less relevant, feeling part of something bigger. It makes me feel less alone. And and I think thinking of causes that are that can shift your reality into more perspective is calming and engaging and it to to have something to to want to find a solution for, to want to help people to make a difference to someone else's life. It's something that we're just, I mean, now it's become, thank God, something that is more trendy and more socially acceptable and more encouraged. But up until now, I think a lot of us have suffered from that feeling of individualism. It started in the 80s. It was Reaganism. It was very deliberate. Collective, the word collective became a bad word. You know, I heard Trump on, num- on a number of occasions degrade the word collective. Um, individualism was extolled. Mm. Um, and it was done culturally. It was done on a number of different levels, but it was very intentional. At the same time, that corporate power in our political system was increasing. When we are not dealing as individuals, but dealing as a collective, we have power. There is power. As individuals, there's not much we can do. There just isn't. I mean, it's nice to make changes in your life. That's important because it makes you feel good. But we can't really, the changes that are needed to make this place livable, this planet, mm-hmm. are require a collective solution. And... And individualism gets in the way of that. So this collective crisis, for example, that is the climate crisis, couldn't be happening at a worse time, at a time when individualism has been extolled. And I hope you're right that because of COVID, people are, you know, are less tending to be individualistic. You know, I grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s and you know, there people belonged to club. There were book clubs, and there were sewing bees, and there were quilting bees, and there were all kinds. Of, people joined clubs a lot, men and women, and that has fallen away. Mm. And ho- and 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 we have to bring that back. People have to begin to congregate together with with a meaning, talk to each other, help each other. 
Something that I have learned about you over the last couple of years is, and I've been able to to use that, and I wish it hadn't happened to you, but I've been able to use that to draw strength from, was watching that however much you love advocacy and how much, however much of an amazing and important and nourishing part of your life it has been, it's also been a source of a lot of public shaming. And you've also been put through the ringer and you've had the FBI like trash your home and you've been followed by the CIA and you've been, you've had the president of the United States shame you and you were, you know, blacklisted by Hollywood for a while. There are, there were so many, um, and I, I particularly wanted to talk to you about this um, because this is something that I've experienced. It's something that Greta Thunberg is experiencing, Meghan Markle, like Gloria Steinem, so many different women who have spoken out from the beginning of time, I'm sure, have faced this onslaught of criticism in the hopes of discouraging us, not just to discourage our individual efforts, but in my opinion, to also discourage other women from starting to wake up and speak up and stand up and stand for something. Can you talk to me a little bit about your experience of that? What it felt like every time you were just trying to help people and you would be rained on by the public and by the media? Well, it feels bad. You know, it was scary. Um, But I'm very stubborn. And the more (laughs) that they tried to do that to me, the more determined I became to not stop. I was... They thought I was some kind of a weak little daddy's girl. They'll scare me away. And I was going to, I was going to show them. That, that you can say not, fuck on this podcast. I, can, I guess I heard you say it. You can. I was going to show them that no matter what they do to me, they're not going to scare me. But the more important thing was that I wasn't alone. I was part of a group. I was part of a movement. I was part of an organization. So I was surrounded by people who could, who could bolster me and, and support me. And then uh, that made all the difference in the world. Would you be able to describe to my audience the kind of things that happened at that time that, that were used as a weapon to silence you? I remember I was getting, going someplace and I looked up and this gorgeous man in a pilot's uniform was walking towards me with this beautiful big smile on his face. And he, and he kept coming and he came right up to me and the f- smile disappeared and he said, I'd like to cut your fucking throat. And that was, that, was, uh, that was a real shocker. There was a guy named Lyndon LaRouche that had a lot of money from a computer business that he had. And he would hire people to um, stand in airports with huge signs that would say things like, feed Jane Fonda to the whales, or Jane Fonda leaks more than Three Mile Island, or, you know, and they'd attack me, they'd attack Henry Kissinger, various people. You know, and I'd have to go walking down this gauntlet of these hateful signs with my kids. That was that was not fun. Or, you know, throwing smoke bombs through my bedroom window in, into our house. Or the time that I came home and all of my everything, all the drawers and closets had been dumped out into the middle of the rooms. And that was the FBI. And um the CIA went into my bank and got all my bank records. That was the first time that had ever happened to an American citizen. And, you know, things like that. They had what's called COINTELPRO, where fake articles would be sent to various um, columnists, like 
somebody sent an article to a Hollywood columnist who was very famous, Army Archer, he's passed, saying that I had called for the assassination of Richard Nixon, you know, and it wasn't true. Or then they, they would put articles in the paper saying that, you know, I was, that I was going to military bases with my hairdresser. Um, making it look like I was the superficial, Mm -hmm. that was, you know, just planting articles that would make, that would make me look bad that, you know, it, it ranged across the board like that. But I mean, if I was, had been black, it would have been worse. I would have been shot. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I can definitely relate to some of that, especially with smear campaigns working through the media, but smoke bombs especially when you have small children i can't even i can't even imagine what yeah my went kids through. grew up with all this my son has a good a good um sense of humor about it but as he said our we used to take vacations and conflict zones we landed in south africa and everybody was made to get off the plane and then we finally got off and there were it was surrounded by tanks with guys with machine guns you know, <laughs> and it was, it was a, quite a time Yeah, he talked about potty training in a camp, I believe, right? What camp was that? We ran a children's camp. Anyway, yeah, it it was, they're really something, my kids. They really grew up with it. We had to have somebody that would remotely turn our car on in case there was a car bomb because friends of ours had been killed with car bombs, things like that. It's so funny the way that they would portray you as clearly not a threat, clearly just doing this for vanity or for attention or because you don't know any better. And yet at the same time, clearly just fucking terrified of what it is that you're doing, what kind of influence you're having on people. The fact that you are, you are whistleblowing what's really happening to a generation that were just listening to you, people from all different walks of life listening to you. And, and I think that. It, the re- one of the the reasons that it was so important for me to have you on this podcast is because I've been talking about this for the last year. This build her up, build her up, rip her down. Like use this this perfect uh, machine to gaslight her, to smear her reputation, to drag her through the mud. And because you can't take her out and kill her, as you were talking about, instead they just kill your credibility. They kill your reputation. And they hyperbolize your many mistakes and never, ever discuss the things that you are triumphant in or the things that you're doing to help people because they are trying, they're terrified of you and they are trying to make people look away all before they go ahead and then just move on to the next. Once they've left you for dead, uh, they move on to the next woman. And, And the reason that one of the many reasons that you're so important to me is that you are one of few examples of women who somehow, because of your stubbornness <laughs> and because of your uh, strength, your profound strength, you carried on, which is the one thing that we are encouraged, especially in this business and especially as women not to do. We are always told, no, don't speak back about it or, you know, don't, don't speak up about how unjust this is or, you know, fight back against their lies. You'll just look like you're complaining. You'll look like you're moaning, you know, just leave it alone. Ignore it, ignore it. Or perhaps it's time to quieten down. Like, Did the people around you, the people that you worked with or the people who you were perhaps not working in advocacy with, but were their friends and family members saying maybe it's time to step back a bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in some cases they weren't wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 
You know, I'll give you an example. I, I won my first Oscar for Clute in 1972. And I was, um, I hadn't yet gone to North Vietnam, but I was a very controversial figure. And um, what was I going to say? I, I kind of figured I was going to win. And there was so much I wanted to say. But I, I, I felt that it was, it would work against me if I used that platform right then to do a diatribe against the war. So mm -hmm. what I did was I wore a black wool suit with a Mao collar <laughs> instead of a fancy dress. That was kind of my, you know, a statement. And then I just said, there's a lot to be said, but tonight isn't the time. Mm -hmm. So I took advice about, you know, toning it down at a time like that. But they were right. But... In your entirety, you didn't step away. You've just kept going just and kept going, going yeah. and going, and and that has been a massive help to me to 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 watch that on the other side of that life continues on. You know, for those of us who are lucky enough to not be literally killed by the people who fear us, yeah. that that their that their bark is often worse than their bite and they are they are afraid of us which is why they are trying to fearmonger us in advance or make an example out of the public women women in politics we're seeing it with AOC we saw it with Hillary Clinton like we've, we see it it with Serena Williams or any woman who threatens the status quo of our society who steps yeah. outside the box and shows her power we must destroy her so that yeah. no one else will try to rise to fill that space or stand up alongside her. Right. But there have been times in my career, especially last year, where I thought, right, well, it's all over for me. That's it. I'm done. Everyone hates me. I should leave. I'm never going to work again. And I had that moment that I think a lot of women in my position have of just our, our training, our programming is just to fuck off. It's just to go away now. It's like, oh, well, our, the curtains have closed and I don't have the right to reopen them. And there was just something in me. And I think part of this is you and watching your documentary or reading your book and, and, and listening to the things that you've said that you were one of the voices in me that just thought, what if I just hang on? What if I just keep going the way that a man would? What if I just take that, the privilege of allowing myself the right to make a mistake, an innocent mistake, or the right to overcome a smear and a lie. What if I just take that for myself and I carry on? Yeah. And what's happened in my life is that all the dust has settled and everything has returned to normal. And I'm able to continue spreading the message that I want to spread. And my, my work has returned. And the same thing has happened with you. You had a triumphant comeback. You were able to carry on doing the job you loved. You were able to keep raising your children or, you know, living with your family. You were able to continue on in activism. I mean, even now you are one of the more renowned climate justice activists in the world. And I just want people to look to your documentaries or your work out there because I cannot tell you how comforting it is to see the way that Jane has been able to overcome, honestly, the worst public shaming I think I've seen any <laughs> woman go through in my entire life. Uh, I, I would like to even imagine I could withstand a tenth of what you withstood for such a long time. And I really... Thank you for the stubbornness that encouraged you to stick around and remind <laughs> us all that on the other side of that is is possibility for joy. 
and effectiveness. Um, anyway, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have been able oh, to do it without you. you. So if I'm still around annoying people, it's Jane Fonda's fault explicitly. <laughs> and you should forward all of your hate and uh, critique to Jane. It's not my I responsibility. Yeah, exactly. She can handle it. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. talk to me a little bit about climate justice and and some of the things about it that you feel most passionate about and you want us to know about well first let me just very quickly say something about the climate crisis yes there 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 is science is very clear and it's unanimous we are facing a potentially catastrophe with the climate crisis we have a very because we didn't act sooner, the amount of carbon that we can continue to burn is growing smaller and smaller. It's a carbon budget because the science says we have to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. If, if we don't, then we may pass a tipping point where we lose all control and ecosystems will begin to collapse. And we human beings depend on those eco- ecosystems for our lives. So, The reason that the warming is happening is because of the burning of fossil fuel, oil, gas, and coal. So we have to keep fossil fuel in the ground and gradually phase out. And we have to do it very, very quickly. The justice part of it is, historically, the fossil fuel industry, the petrochemical industry, the refineries have put their pollutants, their toxins in communities of color, indigenous lands, black communities and communities of color, where people are dying, where children are suffering from asthma and, and are hospitalized and missing school as a result of it, where, where cancer is rampant, where whole neighborhoods are dying of cancer. This is racism. When you, when you, when you boil it all down, if it wasn't for racism, there would be no climate crisis because they would not be able to put their toxins in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. And, and so in addressing the climate crisis, we have to address the racism. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, that President Biden is very well aware of this. He's been very good in, in saying that the money that he's calling for, the trillions of dollars he's calling for, will be first and foremost allocated in cleaning up and protecting and and refurbishing the communities of color um, and indigenous lands that have been at the forefront of the climate crisis. And, and, And so I take my hat off to him. We just have to be sure he does it fast and more. Also, the last time we spoke, you told me some incredible statistics and facts about the ways in which climate also impacts women. There's a disparity. 
in how it impacts women. Would you tell me more about that? Well, women bear the brunt of the climate crisis because especially in the global South, it's women who plant the crops and harvest the crops and fetch the water and chop the wood and provide food for their families and their communities. So that any kind of extreme weather event, be it a flood, be it a fire, be it drought, is going to impact her ability to feed her family. And I know that that a lot of the women that are at the border of, of, of Texas and New Mexico that come from Central American countries are there because the prolonged drought in Central America has made it impossible for them to grow food. And what happens is that they are then beaten by their husbands for not providing the food. I mean, it's 80% of climate refugees are women and we are the last to be rescued. Because women have more body fat than men, body fat sequesters pollutants. So in our bodies, we carry more of the toxins that come because of of fossil fuel emissions. It not only affects us, but when we have a baby inside of us, it affects our fetus. When we nurse a newborn, it's in our breast milk. It's, It's a major cause of disabilities and and, and uh, early deaths of children. And, and this is true all over the country. It's just unbelievable. And all over the world. All over the world, yes. This is a global problem. And, um, and I think that it's one reason why women are on the forefront of the climate crisis. And there's another problem. I was trying to call attention to this terrible line three, bringing tar sands oil from Canada down through Minnesota over two, underneath 200 bodies of water, including the headwaters of the Mississippi River. When these, oil, when these pipes are laid, thousands of workers come in. And northern Minnesota, most of them are out of state. They come to Minnesota to do this work, and they live in what are called man camps. And suddenly the young women and girls are in danger. They're trafficked. They are disappeared. They are raped. I'm not saying that all men who work in the fossil fuel industry do this, but everywhere there are man camps. These are rural areas with thousands of men for long periods of time. Every time there's a man camp, there is a heightened heightened uh, reporting of disappearances and murders and rapes. And it's just, it's, it's scary. They're so scared up there. And so I think you make the important point that any of us who care about feminism, any of us who care about anti-racist work, climate justice and and a, and a, and bringing an end to the climate crisis is a pivotal part of our efforts going yeah. forward, that it can't just be the things that we retweet on social media. Yeah. We have to do this to create equality and equity for everyone yeah. around the world. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that far, I don't have the numbers in my head, but far more black people and Latinx people care about the climate crisis than white people. Mm -hmm. You know, and during the uprisings, the amazing uprisings all over the country after the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And, you know, we had a lot of black people come on to the fire drill Fridays that I have every Friday talking about the interconnections between the climate crisis and racism and racial justice and these are intersectional issues that have to be solved together. 
And we have a, a following of people who are very engaged and very much so looking for ways to help. How can people help support your work or the work of climate justice activists around the world? Well, it, you know, if you're young, I would join the Sunrise Movement. It's a wonderful movement. It's one of the movements that uh, started around the time in 2019 of the global uprising of, of climate activist students. Um, you can you can go onto the website of Fire Drill Fridays and join us every every Friday at 11 o'clock Pacific time. I have interviews with climate activists and scientists and experts and. Um, this coming Friday, it's going to be the Governor Jay Inslee of the state of Washington, who is a, a climate expert. But we have hundreds of thousands of people following us, and and um, and they're active. They write letters, and they call the president, and they, you know, they're actually doing things. And most of them have never done it before, which is great. We're bringing new people into the climate movement. But you know, there's green. We're part of Greenpeace, so there's Greenpeace, there's Sunrise, there's Extinction Rebellion. There's there's so many climate organizations but join join an organization that isn't afraid of of actions because we're going to have to be ready to take big actions yeah and we have no time we are way beyond greta talks about this all the time that we are nowhere near on schedule to be able to reverse the damages the damage that has been done currently i i really appreciate that even after all of the different causes that you have served in your life. Like I was going back through them and I realized that for the longest time in your career, it wasn't just your work against the war in Vietnam. It wasn't just your work for women and for feminism, but also your support when a lot of other people didn't for the gay community, your support for a lot of, for in times where a lot of white people in particular didn't, your support for the black community decades before it's now, you know, something that we are all more engaged in. You have been using your platform, your privilege, your your own kind of lived expertise to help other causes. And you're still doing it now, even in your 80s. I think that's fucking admirable. And also an imperative, I, I guess a, an imperative measure for us all to take. You know, I think that our work is never done because there's so much injustice all around the world. And I think that the day that we stop fighting for other people is, a, as you said before, a day where our life loses its meaning. Yeah. And it's joyful to do it. It's not like eating broccoli or something. I mean, it's fun. It's joyful. <laughs> you meet, you make friends with people who have your same values and it's just, it's wonderful. So Jane, before I let you go, and this has been such a wonderful chat, so I really don't want to but will you please tell me, what do you weigh? I weigh if I am still a student learning things every day. I weigh whether I am able to use my platform effectively to address the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. I weigh that I can wake up in the morning and go through the day not depressed. I weigh that my children love me. I weigh that my grandchildren love me. <laughs> I have one that's in college and one that's not even two. Those, that's what I weigh. I love that. Um, I, I thank you so much for giving me this time. I know you're so busy. And thank you for all of the work you've done across the course of your life. And also 
Thank you for your inspiring attitude towards failure. At the beginning of this podcast, you talked about the fact that you love running towards new things and investigating new things, even when success is guaranteed. Oh, I said leaving my comfort zone. (laughs) Leaving your comfort zone, indeed. Um, And I was wondering, is there anything you want in particular women to know? Because we are the ones most fear-mongered around failure. Is there anything from your experience of it that you want them to know or to take from your life experience? Well, failure is a couple of things. You know, I believe that there is a spirit, a higher power. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's call it God for now, Mm -hmm. for simplicity's sake. Um, Although I don't see God the way that normally, you know, I don't see God as as a human, as a gender sitting up there, but it is what fills my solar plexus and connects me to the rest of the world. Are you quite spiritual? Is this Buddhism or is it just... Oh, well, right. okay. And I've done a lot of studying of Christianity, early Christianity, the Gnostic Gospels and so forth. Um, that spirit, which is critical to a good life, enters you through your wounds and your failures, not through your awards and your successes. That's... you. You learn from your failures and your wounds if you're willing to. I mean, you have to be willing to, but they are critical. Well, everyone, go and pour the spirit into those wounds of yours. And <laughs> and I agree that mistakes, we had a, we had a doctor come on here before who was a neuroscientist and told us that mistakes are how people learn the most effectively. It's always via their mistakes. That's how you can almost ensure someone is less likely to ever do that again because they're going to remember it firmly. Yeah. Um, you know, think of it in terms of working out, which is another thing that I have some expertise yeah. in. When you lift weights, I mean, if you, if you lift challenging weights, okay, mm-hmm. what is happening is there are tiny microscopic tears happening in your muscles, and the reason that a fitness trainer will say to you, you have to wait 20, you know, 48 hours before you work that same muscle again, because those microscopic tears have to heal. And when they heal, they're kind of keloiding and they're stronger. Where the tear was becomes stronger. You're stronger at your broken places. You can become, you become stronger at your broken, broken places. Well, you must feel like you are made of bloody steel then. I sure as shit feel like I'm on my way. Um, Jane Fonda, you're an absolute hero of mine. I bloody love you. Thank you for making this time. I hope I get to see you in person again soon. Thank you very much. And please let me know how I can come support your Fire Drill Fridays with my community because we are there. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Jamila. I admire you a lot. Keep it up. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. 
it's not in pounds and kilos so please don't send that it's all about your just you you know you've been on the instagram anyway and now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners i weigh self-love empowering others trans rights are human rights and adoring my beautiful rescue cat mog Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.